Well, now, if you have a Bible, whether on your phone or, or uh, in a physical copy, I would invite you to turn to the book of Mark. And we are going to continue walking through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to finish off chapter 1 today. And as we've studied the book of Mark, we've been looking at this, examining this idea of the, the gospel way. Jesus, as the Messiah, comes onto the earth, he enters into our world, and he, he shows us a way, and he shows us what it looks like to follow him. And as we look at this section of Mark, verses 31, or verses 35 through 45, I want to look at this way of dependence, this gospel way of dependence, and, and look at how Jesus models that and manifests that in these verses. And what I want to do is I'm going to read the verses in their entirety. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. So hear now God's holy and inspired and life-giving word from Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon... And those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see how you model dependence for us in these verses. Help us to see how you manifest that in the lives of your disciples and those who would come to you. But Lord, more than anything, make us depend on you today. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and fill this place and anoint the reading and preaching of your words so that it is unmistakably you who are speaking. Lord, we thank you that you are a God upon whom we can depend, who cares for us, who gives us a framework for how we might live and empowers us by your Spirit to do that. Lord Jesus, we can only do this because you have come to set us free, to redeem us from our sins, to atone for our sins. Lord, because you've done that, we can walk as your disciples. Help us to do that by your grace, and may it go to your glory and our joy. We pray all of this in your holy and powerful name, Jesus. Amen. In our kind of national and cultural zeitgeist, we have this idea that we are to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. In fact, we have a whole uh, national day of celebration every July 4th where we celebrate that idea of independence, where we cast off the, the ironclad shackles of the British Empire and became our own nation. And so we love we love this notion that we could be self-made people. That by our grit and our wiliness and our determination, we can achieve whatever we set our minds to and become what we ought to be. Now, 
because that's our cultural and kind of national thought, that's coupled with the fact that we, we also maintain a sin nature that says we can be independent apart from God. It does not take long in the book of Genesis to see man at work doing this. If you look in Genesis chapter 11, there's this a wonderful story of the Tower of Babel. And the people, there's one language, they're on the plains of Shinar, and they say, look, we got bricks, we got straw, let's build something. Let's build a tower to the heavens. And so they have this idea that they can do this great thing apart from God. But God, in his kindness and mercy, comes down to see it and scatters them across the earth. That sin nature is with us today. We want to operate independently from God. We want to operate on our own, by our own self-made determination. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and live independently from God. We do not outgrow that. We are, in fact, born that way. But the problem is, the Bible says when we do that, we are in sin, and the, the way of the bootstrap is a way that leads to hell. And so Jesus, here in Mark, teaches us what it looks like to be dependent on the Father. He models that for us, and then he, he manifests that dependence in the life of this leper. So let's look at the, the dependence that Jesus models, starting in verse 35. Early in the morning, after a long night of healing, casting out demons, and ministry, Jesus wakes up and he goes out to a desolate place to pray. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is a, is a holy man. He's a rabbi. And he doesn't go to the synagogue to pray. He doesn't go um, to where he might have any kind of creature comforts. He goes out into what the, the Greek says, a wild desert. A wilderness. It's the same place John was at the beginning of Mark. It's the same place that Jesus gets sent when he's uh, being tempted by the devil. It's the same place that Israel went when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus gets up and he goes to this desolate place. Why? Why wouldn't he go somewhere where there might be some accoutrements and creature comforts? Well, that's because the desert and the wilderness, this is a place of sustenance and dependence. When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they had the presence of God by the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud leading them. And they had manna raining from heaven. The wilderness was a place where God met them and sustained them. And then earlier in chapter 1, when Jesus goes out to the wilderness being tempted by Satan, the angels are there ministering to him. Jesus goes to a desolate place because he knows that all he needs is his Father, and the Father will sustain him. Jesus knows that his Father is the one that can charge him up and, and lift him up and continue his ministry going. It's like when you go, uh, if, if you watch UFC or, or boxing or anything like that, a fighter will go to fight camp before the big fight to get ready, to minimize distractions, to minimize things that might distract from the goal of preparing oneself for the battle. So Jesus in a sense, goes out to a desolate place to pray, showing us that God is someone whom we can depend on, but also showing us that ministry activity, ministry activity has to be preceded by private prayer because we are not going to have any kind of sustained ability on our own. We have to go to the Father to be recharged. Kids, I'm going to ask you a question. Kids in the service, do you get tablet time? Okay, what are the things that you like to do on the tablet? Anna. Watch videos and movies. And what else do you guys like to do? Yeah. Play games. What kind of games? Gold Run? Tom Gold Run. Okay, anything else? What else do we like to do on the tablet, kids? 
Read? Oh, that, there we go. Good. <laughs> all right, but, but what happens, these are all very great. I love watching movies and reading all of those things. What happens when the tablet runs out of batteries? What happens when it runs out of charge? You, you get really, really sad facts. Yeah, but what do you have to do? You have to plug it back in, right? And so Jesus, in a sense here, goes out to a desolate place to pray, and he's getting recharged. He's getting plugged in. He is connecting with his Father because the Father is the one who sustains him for life and ministry. And so the the, the key here is not to guilt you into praying more. The key is to, to show you that even Jesus needs to withdraw. Jesus is recharging. Jesus is going to the Father upon whom he can depend. He's practically demonstrating that prayer is vital for a Christian life. In a world full of distraction, it is good and right to withdraw and to pray. Now, Jesus' prayer time is interrupted. And, and I say interrupted on, on purpose because in verse 36, uh, Simon and those who were with him, uh, presumably the other disciples, uh, they're looking for him. And that's a pretty benign word in English. Um, but this word in Greek, it's, if you're in the know, it's, it's what they call a hapax legomena. All right? This word only occurs one time in the New Testament. This word that, that we translate looking. In other Bible translations, they, they use the same word looking or searching. But one translation has a more accurate word, and that's hunted. The disciples were hunting for Jesus. And there's no other word and no other time in the New Testament when this word gets used. So if you look back in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, you see this word pop up lots of places. But it's usually in military conflict or when Pharaoh is hunting for the Israelites as they leave Egypt. So what's going on here with the disciples is not necessarily a good thing. They're hunting for Jesus. They're going out after him while he's in a desolate place praying. And then you have that combined with the fact that what? The crowds are searching for him. So the disciples are hunting Jesus. And then they come with this message that the crowds are looking after you. They're they're searching for you as well. And that's also not really a good thing. Because I I know that we're, we're taught... In, in the book of Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God and, and all these things will be added to you. So the idea of looking for Jesus is normally really positive. Generally speaking, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, looking for Jesus is a good thing, a positive thing. But in the Gospel of Mark, when the crowds are looking for Jesus, when they're searching for Jesus, that word gets used ten times throughout the Gospel. And in each instance of that word being used, it is not positive. The Pharisees are looking for a sign. They're looking for an opportunity to betray him. Jesus' mother and brothers are looking for him to interrupt his ministry when he's in the house. At the very end of the book, the, the women go looking for Jesus in the wrong place when he's resurrected. He's not in the tomb. He's been, he's been resurrected. So looking for Jesus is not a positive thing. Now, What's going on here? There's a tension. There's a tension. Jesus is withdrawing to go to the Father, and the crowds and disciples are going after him, looking at him, looking for him. And and what's going on, scholars say, is that the crowds were, were looking, they were desiring to control him. They saw the fruit of his ministry. They saw the healing. They saw the demons being cast out. They saw all these good things. And so there's a sense in which, scholars say, that the crowds wanted to find Jesus and take advantage of who he was and what he was doing. They wanted to control rather than submit. 
And so Jesus, in the midst of all these distractions, people looking for him, wanting to take advantage of him, he withdraws and goes away to a desolate place. And so we see this tension in the text, but we also see this tension in the world, right? In the world, there's this kind of ethos of you have to be in control. You have to be in charge. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. You are unconquerable and can be whatever you want. But then the, the biblical narrative says, no, you were created and designed to be dependent. You weren't designed to operate like a tablet, universally independent from power source. You were designed to be plugged into something. And so if we're being honest, that's not just something that we kind of intellectually talk about. That's something that we viscerally experience and, and feel. Like, it's one thing to say intellectually, yeah, I know I need Jesus. Duh. I get it. But it's another thing to actually live that out and manifest that in your lives. We so often operate like we're Genesis 11 people on the plains of Shinar saying, look at what I'm going to do. Look at what I'm going to do to get to God. Look what I'm going to do to impress God. Look at how much I journal. Look at how fancy my letter writing is in my fancy journal. Uh, look at how much money I'm going to give to the church. Look at how much I'm going to serve and sacrifice of my time. We functionally operate in a world, in a culture that says you have to do, 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 do. Like the disciples, like the crowds. We want to do things. We want to be active. We want to take advantage of and we want to control rather than submit and let God be the one in charge. We just think, if I could just do enough to impress God, God will actually be happy with me, and I don't have to do any more. But the problem is, your activity, your activity doesn't impress God. What we confessed in our prayer of confession, our very best deeds are filthy rags. Right, The best things that we can do, the best spiritual activity we can muster, those are filthy rags before the Holy Father. And so this bootstrap notion that we have, this bootstrap spirituality, it doesn't work. It might work in the short term, and you might look impressive on the outside. But again, a bootstrap faith, a bootstrap spirituality will take you right on the road to hell and condemnation. Because God is not impressed with our activity. Your sins are not atoned for by your activity. Your sins are atoned for by Jesus. And so what we get here in Mark is a picture, a picture of withdrawal and rest and refreshment. It's the same picture we get every Sunday when we get to stop what we do on a normal weekly basis. We don't go to class. We, we don't have to work, most of us. Um, we get to stop and we get to gather and we get to worship God on this day. You know, it's weird that Chick-fil-A is the third largest food company in America because they're closed every Sunday. They know enough that they want to honor and reflect God in their kind of business model and practice that they want to let employees rest on the Sabbath. And guess what? They are still the third largest food and beverage company in the world behind McDonald's and Starbucks, I think. And so there's this model that we have in the Christian life of stop. Because we don't want to do it, God gives it to us. We don't want to stop working. We don't want to stop hustling. We don't want to stop grinding. And so God says, all right, take one day. Just one day out of seven and stop and gather and come to me. All who are weak and weary and I will give you rest, Jesus said. And so when we gather 
on a Sunday. That's a tangible expression that we need God, that we depend on Jesus, that we need each other to walk this Christian life. Because if we're honest, there's so much tension and there's so much distraction from a world that says do, do, do. And so again, the, the point of this is not, is not to make you feel bad for how little you pray or how much you try to impress God. The point of this is to say that Jesus is modeling for us a way. He's giving us a picture so we know what it might look like. It's really hard to do something if you don't have a concept for what it looks like. And so Jesus, in his kindness and his grace, says he's giving us this picture of withdrawal and dependence on the Father. And so the application here is not make sure you have your quiet time first thing in the morning. That's not the application. The application here for you as a believer in the 21st century is expect the tension. Lean into it. Understand that you live in a culture that wants you to do more. I mean, don't raise your hand, but I'll just be honest. I feel bad when I'm driving in the car and I'm not listening to a podcast that's going to make me better at something. Like, I legit, I feel bad if I'm not actively doing something to improve myself all the time. And so, when you are walking the Christian life, expect that tension because you live in a culture that tells you you have to do more and be better and life hack your way to success. But it's not just a culture thing, it's, a, it's an internal thing too, it's a sin thing. You have an inner, an inner desire because of your sin nature to achieve and to be better, so you have to recognize that and lean into that and repent of that. God doesn't call you to activity necessarily. God calls you to repentance and to trust. So the application is be aware and recognize where that tension is so that you can repent and turn to Jesus in faith. So in the face of cultural pressure and sinful people, Jesus models for us what dependence on the Father looks like. But he doesn't just model that for us. He doesn't just show us how to have a quiet time. He doesn't show us how to get away from needy people who are going to distract us from the really important things of ministry. No, he also manifests this dependence as he's going about doing the work that God has called him to. Notice, he went and he prayed and he said, all right, we're going to go on and we're going to preach in the other towns because that's what God called us to do. Jesus is doing what God called him to do, not caving into cultural pressures and the peer pressure of the crowds. And so as Jesus is going on, we see in verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And so this leper knows something that we cognitively know but struggle to believe, that real healing is found in Christ. And so Jesus, moved with pity, reaches out his hand, touches him and says, I will be clean. Now, I want you to look at the contrast here between the leper and the crowds. The crowds seeking Jesus probably to control him wanted something to gain from him. The leper comes to Jesus, kneels before him in humility, and says, if you will, you can make me clean. You see, the leper doesn't say, if you can. The leper doesn't doubt Jesus' ability. The leper only doubts Jesus' willingness. And so the leper comes to Christ in humility, recognizing that he is the one who can actually take care of his issues. He recognizes that it's only because of Jesus' grace and mercy that he can actually find the healing that he needs and desires. That is a real sharp contrast from the arrogance and the clamor of the crowds. 
But here's the problem. They already had a system in place for dealing with this. The leper goes to the wrong place. They had a system in Judaism to deal with your leprosy. I know a lot of you love reading Leviticus devotionally, but if you go back to Leviticus 13 and 14, you see very clearly laid out in the law of God, this is what you do with leprosy. Now, really quick, uh, when we read the word leprosy here, it's not what we think of as Hansen's disease, right? Leprosy where you, you lose feeling in your, your extremities and you bump into something and you don't realize that you've crushed your foot and your, your body falls apart. When we read leprosy in the New Testament and the Old Testament, think more like... Um, I mean, like skin diseases, like impetigo or staph infections or ringworm, something like that. Because when you read Leviticus, it, it doesn't really have anything to do with Hansen's disease. But, but here's the thing. The priests had a significant role. And this was God's plan for his people at this time, right? When God gave Israel the law from Mount Sinai, this, this mountain that couldn't be touched because God's presence was on there, he also gave them work for the priests to do. And part of that was inspecting skin diseases. That's a weird thing for a pastor to have to do. But hey, that's what we were doing. And so the priests were responsible with identifying and inspecting and kind of tracking what was going on on the skin and clothing and houses of their people. And if there was something gross, if there was a lesion, if there was an issue, there was a provision for that. The leprous person, the infected person, was to go outside the camp, wear dirty clothes, let their hair get all raggedy, and if they were going to come anywhere near people, they were going to yell, unclean, unclean. Because there was an issue in the life of Israel with being ceremonially unclean. You could not enter the house of God. You couldn't enter God's presence if you were unclean. And so the leper was unclean and had to go away and outside of camp. Now, the priest would then inspect, and as it was getting better, when things got better, there was a provision for the priest to make sacrifices uh, with blood, killing an animal, with offering oil, and they're going to put the blood on the oil on the leprous person, and the priest would then declare the leprous person clean. And so for healing and cleansing, the leper had to offer sacrifices and be declared clean by the priest. Now, I'm going to pause there really quick and ask the kids another question. Um... Kids, when do you wash your hands? After we use the bathroom. Very, very good. Very good. When else do we wash our hands? Cost kids. What are you doing? Before making food. Very good. Very good. Before eating the food. After playing outside. You guys are very hygienic. I'm very impressed. Yes, Aaron. Before you play in the mud, that is an interesting tactic. Let me ask, why are you, why do we have to do that? Why do we have to wash our hands, kids? To stay clean? Why else do we have to wash our hands? To not, to not get sick. Yeah, to not get sick. Like you get, when you're playing outside in the mud or after you go to the bath, there's germs on your hands. There's little invisible things that'll make you sick. So it's good. To, to keep those germs from getting in your mouth and making you sick. All right, so God understands, well, hey, hygiene, I mean, I think clearly in the Old Testament, but God understands that there is this spiritual sense of dirtiness that needs to be dealt with. And that's why he gives his people this provision of the priests and the sacrifices so that we can be cleansed of not just our bacteria and germs in the mud, kids, but be cleansed from our sin. And so the leper, the leper knows something that the crowds don't. He goes to Jesus and asks, would you heal me if you are willing? 
He doesn't go demanding Jesus do this for him. He goes humble and says, can you make me clean? Are you willing? And Jesus, moved with pity, reaches out his hand and touches him. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal because remember, if a leprous person touched somebody or something, that thing became unclean too. And so the leprous people had to stay far away. But Jesus, the Messiah, reaches out his hand, touches that leper, does not become unclean himself, and makes this leper clean. Because here's the thing, the priests, which are still in the story, right? Jesus doesn't say, to heck with the priests. He says, go to the priests, offer what Moses said, and let them declare you clean. Jesus is a better priest, Because he doesn't just declare the leper clean. He himself makes the leper clean. He manifests that cleanness in a life that is filled with not just a physical illness, not just with physical ailments, but with spiritual illness. Jesus cleanses this man heart, body, mind, soul. So as the Messiah, Jesus is providing this cleansing that only the Messiah can and is showing in real-time action, that God and God's plan is the thing that upon which we can depend for our spiritual healing and cleansing. But again, there's a tension, right? There's a tension not between the crowds and Jesus, not between the culture and Jesus, but between the religious system and Jesus. All right? Jesus is the one that's declaring them clean. And the priests are kind of sitting there like, well, okay, well, what are we supposed to do now? And we know as, as 21st century Christians looking back that everything that the priests did was a prelude to Jesus. All of the ministry of the priests was, it was a prefiguring of the ministry of Jesus. The priests were, were kind of a pit stop on the redemptive journey and Jesus is the destination. So it's not, right for us to look at here and say, gosh, the priests are so stupid. Gosh, the Jewish people were so dumb. Why do they even mess with that? Don't they know that Jesus is the the only thing they need? I mean, they don't really know that yet, so we can't really have that posture. But there is a tension on, right now, at this point in redemptive history, Jesus is on the scene as the Messiah. So what do we have to do with the vestiges of religious tradition that God put in place? It's not to say that the priests were bad. It's not to say that they were foolish for going to the priests. It's to say that God is doing something new, and Jesus is the one that has to, has to unfold that plan of God through his life in ministry. So when we read this, we have to wrestle with the fact that we like our traditions, that we are comfortable with our traditions, that we prefer our traditions in many ways more so than we prefer going to Jesus himself. I, I, I don't know um, how many of you have a background in Roman Catholicism, um, but, but the, the Roman Catholic Church, I think, really tapped into kind of the psychological lives of people when they had this, this, this really standard process of going to the priest and confessing. Right? You get to go in that little box, and you get to see the priest kind of through the veil on the other side, and you get to confess all of your sins to the priest. When you do that, there's a real psychological burden that gets lifted off of you. And so, so many people love this tradition of going to the confessional because it feels good and it works for them. But even if you're not Roman Catholic, we all have religious traditions that we do because it feels good and makes us feel better about ourselves. But brothers and sisters, friends, we are not saved by our religious traditions. 
They're good things sometimes. Sometimes they're not. You are saved by the Messiah who would reach out his hand and say, I am willing. You are clean. You are not saved by going to a mountain that you cannot touch. You are saved by a Messiah who would come touch you and make you whole. And so Jesus, in this ministry to the leper, shows us that God is at work. And if we want to experience true healing, we cannot go to man-made traditions. We cannot go to our favorite cultural practices. We have to go to the one who made us and who calls us to himself. You see, the hero of this story is Jesus. And you have to learn as a disciple to make Jesus the hero of your own story. Because like I said earlier, we have this preponderance in our sin nature to want to do, do, do. I want to do holy things. I want to do spiritual activity so God will notice me. And the other, the flip side of that is we don't want to be like the leper. We want to avoid unclean things. We want to abstain from those things and practices that will make us sinful. I don't want to drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. We have this idea that if we can avoid enough bad things if we can avoid enough external bad sins, that we will be holy enough for God. But here's here's the application. Here's the application. You can never look clean enough on the outside to be clean for God. When you stand before a holy God, you are exposed. You're exposed as a sinner. Because it's not just about what you do externally. You're exposed with your internal motivations and your desires and your heart. And so there's never enough abstinence from the bad things to make you holy before God. So holiness is not a matter of doing the right things or avoiding the wrong things. It's a matter of coming to the one upon whom you can depend for real healing and real transformation. That is Jesus. So the application is that you and I need to properly understand the defilement. We need to properly understand the issue in order to be reconciled to God. Because here's the thing. If our biggest problem was ignorance, then all you need is an education. If your biggest problem is loneliness, then you just need a friend. You just need to download Bumble or Hinge or something. If your biggest problem is uh, unhealth, you just need to exercise and eat better. But if we're being honest, we have to understand that our biggest problem is not that we have dirty hands because we played in the mud, Aaron. It's that we have dirty hearts because we are born into this world separated from God. The original sin of Adam was passed down to us when we were born into this world. And so we come into the world already defiled, already ready to rebel against God and his design, already to try to earn our way to salvation, already to live a life of bootstrap spirituality. And that bootstrap spirituality, left untreated, will lead you straight to hell. Because you see, the problem, one of the big problems with bootstrap spirituality is that it's about, look at what I'm doing. Look at my spiritual activity. Look at what I'm avoiding. Look at what I'm not watching. Look at what I'm not buying. Look at what I'm not consuming. And the, the common denominator there is I, 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 me, me, me. If you operate on a bootstrap spirituality, you are the author of your faith. You are the Messiah that you are trying to follow. And you are not going to the one who gives life and cleansing. Because here, here's the real deal. 
language scholar people, the original phrase, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, was meant to be absurd. It was meant to be a a stupid, absurd, and foolish thing. Because if you reach down, sorry Brian, it's popping. If you reach down and you start pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you're not going anywhere. It was meant to be a, a logical fallacy, an impossible thing. You can't pull yourself up by your own hair. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I'm not here to impugn the legitimacy of idiomatic phrases. Look, I get it. When we say it's raining cats and dogs, we know it doesn't literally mean there are cats and dogs falling outside. But when we talk about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, it's not just that we've lost the original meaning. It's that we embody that ethos in our culture and in our sin nature. We want to do things on our own. I don't know if you've ever tried to brush a toddler's teeth. But they are like, nope, I'm going to do it, not you. And if they go their own way, their teeth will rot and fall out of their heads because they can't do it. And so the point here, the point here, is again, not to make you feel guilty about what you're doing or not doing. The point here is to say, look, Jesus doesn't just model this dependence. He doesn't just manifest it in the life of the leper. Jesus, in his sovereign grace and mercy, makes you and makes I dependent on him. When Jesus comes and you repent and you believe in Christ, your heart of stone is ripped out of your chest. The Holy Spirit regenerates you. You now have a heart of flesh that says, I understand my need. I know that I can go to Jesus and he will heal me and he will deliver me and he will love me all the days of my life. Now, here's what's up. Independence is not a bad thing in and of itself. If you're a parent or you're a child, you know that the goal eventually is to to grow up in a way to leave the house to go live life on your own. But as believers, as followers of Christ... I would implore you, we need to learn that we can never grow up and move beyond the gospel. The Christian life is not one where I needed this when I was younger because I was stupid and foolish and arrogant and sinful. And as I get older, I don't need that anymore. I can leave that behind. No, we are in grave error if we think that we needed Jesus when we are young and dumb and when we're old and wise, we don't need him anymore. The Christian life is a life of growing more and more and more dependent on the Savior because you realize more and more and more how needy you are. Wisdom doesn't always mean sinning less, as provocative as that might sound. Wisdom means understanding your capacity for sin and understanding that you need to more quickly and clearly turn from your sin and go to the one who can save you and who can cleanse you. So Jesus doesn't just model it and manifest it. He actually becomes sin. He who knew no sin so that we might become righteous before him. You see, Christianity is not a matter of what you do or don't do. It's a matter of what you've been given. Dependence on Jesus is not up to you doing or not doing something. It's about you trusting him by faith and being given a righteousness that you could never earn by your activity or by your abstinence. So the hope of the Christian life is the hope of weakness. The hope of the Christian life is to say, I know I'm not enough. I know I'm not sufficient. I know I'm sinful and rebellious. But to go to the one who is enough who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who says, I am willing, be clean. The hope of the Christian life is that we have a God upon whom we can depend to the point where he sent his son Jesus to die for me and you. So we don't want 
to get away from our bootstrap culture because we want to be strong and confident and competent. But the hope of the Christian life is to do just that. It's to look weak in the eyes of the world because it took something that looked so weak in the eyes of the world, the cross, to achieve what you and I could never do. And that is health and reconciliation with the Father and forgiveness. So the final thing I will say is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So brothers and sisters, would you learn more and more to depend on the one to whom you can find your healing in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we don't want a Savior so much. We might want a little advice We might want a little instruction on how to be better. But we don't want to come to the end of ourselves and repent and say, I can't do it. I need you to clean clean me up, Jesus. But Lord, help us to know that you are the one to whom we can go. You are the one who is worthy of our hope. You are the one who is worthy of our trust. Because you are the only God who came to us in weakness and frailty so that we might be forgiven by your death and resurrection. Lord, help us to live lives dependent on you. Forgive us for how we try to be independent on our own. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen.